0: That's why childhood trauma is so important. So now we have individuals walking around with, for all intents and purposes, dominant fear centers that can have hormonal consequences, predisposing us to depression, anxiety, irritable bowel syndrome. There's some discussion in literature, they wanted to rename it irritable brain syndrome wow. because the vast majority of IBS patients have depression or anxiety. So yeah. it's not just some theoretical, like, mysterious connection. Like, we really have so many steps of this physiologic chain. To the brain. And to your point, you know, a lot of people think, oh, celiac disease. You know, I I don't have physical symptoms like you're talking about, or GI symptoms, how can it be affecting the brain? What we find in schizophrenia is that rather than tissue transglutaminase two, which affects your gut, they have tissue transglutaminase six antibodies that affect the brain. I think we we just keep doing the same thing and we have to do something different. What was the world's number one cause of disability? Depression, not lower back pain. It's not orthopedic injuries, it's depression.
1: In this episode, I speak with Dr. Randall Gates, board-certified chiropractic neurologist who practices functional neurology and works with many patients who struggle with mental health concerns, looking at the interconnected physiological and environmental roots. If you're unfamiliar with the term, functional medicine at large is a more holistic approach to treating people. Perhaps you've heard of psychoneuroimmunology or integrative medicine. It sees the biological systems of the immune system, nervous system, gut health, hormones, all of it as deeply intertwined and inseparable from each other as well as from our mental health. So in this episode, Dr. Yates and I talk about the links between autoimmune disease, childhood trauma, and mental health concerns such as depression, OCD, anxiety, and psychosis in particular we talk about the role of diet food allergies gluten and celiac disease Hashimoto's disease we talk about the latest research on brain inflammation as well as a simple test that you can request from your doctor if you're struggling with mental health concerns and while we don't give medical advice in this episode this is a conversation that is crucial for anyone who's interested in mental health Hi, I'm Jasmine Russell, and this is Depth Work, a holistic mental health podcast. This is a space for those who love to dive into the underbelly, to revel in the mystery, question assumptions about what's normal, play in the both and, and honor the wide range of human emotion. As a complex trauma survivor, holistic counselor, and co-founder of a mental health training institute, I've learned that there is immense wisdom in our pain, and that what we call crazy is just what we are not yet willing to understand and explore. I'm so glad that you're here, so let's dive in.
2: Dr. Gates, welcome to the Depth Work Podcast.
0: Thank you, Jasmine. Thank you for having me.
2: So I'd love to hear a bit about some of your personal reasons or connections, ways that you've come to focus on brain health, functional neurology, and mental health within that.
0: So I was a discus thrower, and I was thinking that I'd be a high school biology teacher and a track coach, and I went Got to the end of my biology degree, and I realized that talking about biology itself was going to be pretty boring for me for the rest of my life. So then I kind of panicked and I was looking at what I was going to do next. And then I ended up finding myself in chiropractic school because I was talking to my chiropractor, and she was saying, You know, you're athletic, you'd probably be good with people. So I just decided to go to chiropractic school, and I'm there. And then I wasn't so sure once I was in. Chiropractic school, if that was the right fit for me. But this gentleman came and spoke, who invented this field called functional neurology, which is basically like neuroplasticity-based applications, personal training for your brain, if you want to think of it that way. And he was rehabbing stroke patients, vertigo patients, Tourette's patients. And I said, that's what I want to do. So then I immersed myself in neurology and neurology rehab while going through Cairo school. And then I I got out of school and passed my board exam to become a chiropractic neurologist. So I'm a board-certified chiropractic neurologist and chiropractic physician or chiropractor, however you want to say it. And then I was working with chronic pain patients, and a lot of patients who have chronic pain, fibromyalgia diagnoses, have concomitant depression, anxiety. The more you get into fibromyalgia, the faster you'll realize that there's a huge overlap with childhood trauma. A huge proportion of those individuals have been through adverse early life circumstances. And so then I delved into that, and then I started to realize that a lot of these individuals didn't want to be on antidepressants, and there was a whole stigma around that, and maybe they weren't working as well as they wanted them to. And that really forayed me into, you know, kind of the mental health side of what I do. And so then I got into supplementation and dietary therapies, as you put it, psychoneuroimmunology, how the gut can really affect the brain. And it kind of opened this whole cornucopia that I now exist in with patients who maybe want to address their mental health in part or in larger part through natural means.
2: Beautiful. Yeah, that's
0: kind of my story. Yeah.
2: Wonderful. Yeah. You know, I would say a lot of the listeners on this podcast and people that are kind of in this world of holistic mental health and who are kind of critical of some of the current dominant models in psychiatry and mental health at large, this dominant model that says, you know, biology is really important, but it's all in your brain. And then we're in so much need of other models of understanding. Yes, biology is absolutely incredibly important, and it can't be separated from any of the other bodily functions. So how would you describe for folks that are maybe a little bit less familiar with psychoneuroimmunology, this kind of integrative medicine approach?
0: I think I like analogies or examples. So there's so much stigma, for example, around gluten. When gluten became a thing around 2006 to 2014, there was a lot of research being done and ultimately they found that the one definitive marker we can see with a gluten intolerance is actually dysphoria, it's depression. So when people eat gluten, if they have a problem with it, they feel depressed and it's not a small percentage of the population. I mean, we're talking like five to maybe 18% of people walking around have that effect. And so, yeah, I concur with you. They're inseparable phenomena. It's not just a brain. Your brain is totally dependent on the biology coming from your body, from your gut. And that's really important. And that's why my logo was kind of like a plant with a brain on top. Everything from the roots is what is going to give, you know, good neurological function or perhaps bad neurological function. Yes, yeah, certainly some people have genetics such that they can eat whatever they want and they're totally fine, but a lot of people are not and look at the statistics around mental health. So, yeah.
2: Yeah. And how does this approach kind of differ in terms of the ways that you work with clients? I'll give an example. I'm someone who, has struggled with autoimmunity, chronic health concerns. Uh That's why I have a deep interest in this. And going to a kind of traditional Western medicine doctor, you have a very, very, very narrow pathway. And usually not a ton of questions are asked. But as soon as you go to see someone, perhaps like yourself, a a functional Uh medicine professional, it expands. And they actually do start asking about childhood trauma about you know what things were like when you were in utero, <laughs> like there's so it mm-hmm. just kind right of spans yeah yeah that They're so field. important,
0: hundred yeah. percent yeah 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 and I think you know even I, I did that talk that you asked me to do and I cited in that talk the study I think it was like translational psychiatry 2017 where they examined if you have an MTHFR polymorphism if you have childhood trauma or if you don't have those variables. What is your time to reoccurrence of depression? For those who don't know what I'm talking about there relative to MTHFR, that's just the enzyme, not just. It is the enzyme that converts folic acid from your diet to an active form. And without that, you have a hard time making active folic acid. So they examined that and it was something to the effect of if you had trauma earlier in life and you had that enzymatic defect, if you want to say it that way, or aberration, your time to recurrence of depression was like 166 days. Whereas if you didn't have childhood trauma and you don't have that MTHFR polymorphism, you're almost on the order of like three years for time to recurrence of depression. So yeah, all of these mm-hmm. things are so, so, so important. And that's why you have to ask these questions because it really changes my treatment, whether someone's had childhood trauma or what is their MTHFR status? Or yeah, what was your mom going through? That's one of my key questions when... We're in utero. We even know with fibromyalgia, huge proportion of them. Their mom was stressed during pregnancy and that sensitizes their whole pain system. So yes, everything is so important. We're not just a diagnosis. We are a story. Of many years and decades,
2: can you yeah. describe some of the pathways I, I love that you really bring up and focus so much on childhood trauma and the ways that that can impact people throughout you know the rest of their lives. As far as I'm aware, childhood trauma makes you more likely to develop an autoimmune disease, to develop IBS, to mm-hmm. uh, experience you know higher levels of cortisol. All these things. Can you explain some of the pathways through which that happens?
0: Yeah, in essence we we take a young child all of us have observed a newborn a baby that's like a month old 3 months old 5 months old you can see neurological functions coming online you know you can see them start to move their head have more expressions move their limbs eventually crawl walk well if you take an individual in that time frame and now you're exposing them to traumatic circumstances or really what we're finding is probably definitely up to 8 years of age is really important now their developing brain is just soaking everything in. And when they are soaking in, let's say parents arguing, other traumatic circumstances, neglect, other types of abuse, their amygdala is going to be turned on. It's going to get stronger. And what we know is that the amygdala actually gets stronger, hyperconnected, can even enlarge in this setting. And it's not just enlarged then, it that relationship is changed. Doesn't mean it's irreparable, doesn't mean it's, you know, that there's nothing that we can't approach it with, but it's important to have that context that it's not just a childhood thing. It's something that happens in childhood that then shapes our brain lots of times the rest of our life, which gets into that anatomical relation of the amygdala to the hippocampus. And so the hippocampus, for those who don't know, is your memory area and your amygdala, your fear center sits right in front of it, basically. So if you have amygdala that's dominant, then it can enlarge into the space of the hippocampus. And then that leads to hormonal consequences like you're talking about, so high cortisol. And unfortunately, high cortisol does what? It actually fries neuronal growth for all intents and purposes in the hippocampus because your hippocampus is one area of your brain that clinically matters that actually makes new brain cells the rest of our lives. Actually, I'd have to say in this post-pandemic era, Yeah, the olfactory bulb is the other one. But needless to say, that's why childhood trauma is so important. So now we have individuals walking around with, for all intents and purposes, dominant fear centers, and then that can have hormonal consequences, predisposing us to depression, anxiety, irritable bowel syndrome. There's some discussion in literature, they wanted to rename it irritable brain syndrome because the vast majority of IBS patients have depression or anxiety and if you talk to a gastroenterologist, they'll say, yeah, most of my IBS patients need help there. Autoimmune disease, chronic fatigue syndrome, fibromyalgia. So it's almost like you name a chronic disorder and there probably is some tie to that. And that's why, because now we're in fight-flight much more so than we should be. That basal tone of fight-flight is higher than it should be. So,
2: is a lot yeah. of this through inflammation? Is that kind of one of the main pathways? Well,
0: I think that definitely is part of it because then... That's a really interesting point to bring up, because now what we're learning is that the mast cells, a type of immune cell, like mast on a ship, these mast cells have corticotropin releasing hormone, which is a cortisol pathway derivative receptors on them. And so when we're more stressed, we're more likely to degranulate our mast cells. And we used to just think that mast cells secreted histamine, now we realize they secrete inflammatory chemicals too. And so how many fibromyalgia patients have IBS? We know a lot do. We now know that a lot of IBS patients have abnormal mast cells. We know that histamine levels are high right before a migraine. And so, yeah, now the stress really triggers inflammation further, the stress will break down your gastrointestinal lining. You know, the skin on our hand has several layers to it, but our, the skin in our GI tract is basically one cell layer thick. So it's a very delicate environment. So now you put somebody under this chronic stress and is it conceivable that their GI barrier can break down that leads to pieces of bacteria coming into the bloodstream, not whole bacteria, but pieces of bacteria that will elicit systemic inflammatory responses. You know, we put that now in the context of what a lot of people are eating here in America. So if you're in a country, let's say that has a food supply that's changed, then now that affects our microbiome which then affects inflammation too.
2: So I think a lot of folks who maybe aren't as familiar with functional medicine or some of these kinds of approaches tend to kind of wonder you know why why are so many people talking about <laughs> diet and food and nutrition like is it really that important? I think to your point absolutely. Can you describe maybe some of the interventions that you might work with when it comes to food and nutrition?
0: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I have nine different, if you want to call them food programs that I use with my patients. So food, depending on the individual is super important. If somebody has an autoimmune disorder, like rheumatoid arthritis, I'm probably going to be thinking about a vegetarian diet, for example. There's a lot of evidence that sustained vegetarian diets minus some other foods can be really beneficial for some people who have that. If someone has diabetes, I may be putting them on more of like a paleo type diet. So it just depends on the condition and what we're trying to affect with their physiology. I'd say someone has schizophrenia, we definitely want to think about gluten or bipolar gluten and dairy, actually schizophrenia, gluten and dairy for sure. So yeah, it just just depends on the condition.
2: Okay, let's get into the into the gluten conversation because, okay. like you said, that's that's something that I think you mentioned around 2014, and I do mm-hmm. remember this time period too for myself. Everyone was talking about gluten, gluten and inflammation, mm-hmm. right, celiac right. disease, but. I'm so fascinated by this research because of my own lived experience and because a lot of my clients, it's, it's not just that gluten can be inflammatory for certain folks. I think a lot of people don't realize that some of the signs and symptoms of celiac disease, autoimmunity, or even non-celiac gluten intolerance can be almost exclusively or at least dominantly mental health related. And that's something that we don't really make a lot of connections to. People think, well, if I have celiac disease, wouldn't I be experiencing, you know, I don't know, muscle pain, joint pain, you know, things that, are, that, that might be considered more physiological. Is it true that you can just get actually severely depressed or even have symptoms of psychosis just from something like celiac? And you absolutely can't. So explain more about that.
0: Yeah. yeah. I think for those who are interested, look, into, I think it's called the Stanley Research Fund or the Stanley Research Institute. I believe they gave somewhere in the order of like a half of a billion, if not a billion dollars to Johns Hopkins to study this issue. And a lot of really great research has come out of Johns Hopkins on this. And in essence, what they have found is that there's a definitive immunological reaction that we're seeing in those, for example, let's use schizophrenia to gluten. And dairy proteins. Interestingly, one article I read showed that 88% of schizophrenics had either gastritis or colitis. Like that is just an astounding statistic. Yeah. And then to realize what they then discovered is that there's been a lot of discussion about toxoplasmosis. I don't know if that's familiar for some of your listeners. So in essence, there's a certain parasite that is kind of ubiquitous. It's everywhere. Cats are a major vector for it, and if you have a normal immune system, if you want to say it that way, you'll eliminate it. But what they found in those with a tendency for schizophrenia, that this parasite will actually kind of start to live within the GI tract, break down the gastrointestinal barrier, create a specific immunological reaction in those with schizophrenia, that then they were creating antibodies to gluten and dairy that were going into the brain, so not just in the body. But these antibodies are going into the brain having an impact Mm -hmm. which is really wild and then when we look at the physiology of something like schizophrenia and also awareness on this issue you know so happy you're bringing this up because now we can start to say okay you have schizophrenia but what about your nephew what about your child because we need to in my opinion really be talking about that for the kids Who maybe have a tendency for these types of issues? Because we know by the time someone has a psychotic event, there has been some atrophy out in the lateral portions of the frontal lobes. And so, is that atrophy really happening because of an immunological toxicity to a glutamate receptor that's overexciting their brain? So, it's not just some theoretical, like mysterious connection. Like, we really have so many steps of this physiologic chain to the brain. And to your point, you know, a lot of people think, oh, celiac disease, you know, I, I don't have physical symptoms like you're talking about or GI symptoms. How can it be affecting the brain? What we find in schizophrenia is that rather than what's called tissue transglutaminase two, which affects your gut, they have tissue transglutaminase six antibodies that affect the brain. So it's a celiac disease like response, but it impacts the brain, not the gut.
2: Yeah. And to your point also about childhood trauma being a major factor, a huge percentage of people that get labeled with schizophrenia are also survivors of childhood trauma, which just right. primes right. the whole pump. Yeah. 100%. Yeah. 100%. So, what else are you seeing in folks with celiac disease, other autoimmune issues, mental health wise? It could be, you know, psychosis, hallucinations, patients, <clears throat> things like that. It could be depression. What else? Mm hmm. Mm-hmm.
0: Anxiety, OCD, we can talk about that. We now know like with anorexia as well, there's a huge connection between the gut and the brain. So yeah, mast cell activation syndrome, I think is the new frontier we're going to be hearing about over the next decade. Because it's kind of a parallel pathway to celiac disease, leaky gut syndrome. I didn't create that term. I don't like the term, but that's, that's what's used in the literature. So is there a reason
2: why you don't like that?
0: Well, I think it sounds so demonstrative, and then if you say it to any other doctor, they're just going to roll their eyes, which inevitably is what happens. Intestinal hyperpermeability is a more appropriate term. So, but you know, we'll we'll see. I think leaky gut definitely conveys to patients for sure, and so, nonetheless, I think that leaky gut is a parallel pathway to mast cell activation syndrome, and then when we have these mast cells, which basically genetically are program to secrete too much histamine and inflammation. And now we have a food supply that's changed. And now we're coming out of a pandemic and all the stressors associated with that. And then also what is what are some of these viruses doing to the mast cells, maybe irritating them, causing them to secrete more inflammation. And then high amounts of histamine can overstimulate the brain. We look at a condition, you know, I don't have a research article on this, but we look at a condition like OCD where the brain is definitely hyperactive not gating itself as well in terms of thoughts could histamine have an impact there an impact i think so so
2: mm-hmm. yeah. yeah yeah i'd love to chat about ocd and anxiety as well because i would say I work predominantly with people that are diagnosed with psychosis or schizophrenia. And most of these clients, I also see other, you know, autoimmune related issues, but this is also the case for a lot of my clients who experience symptoms of OCD or anxiety as well, who maybe Mm -hmm. as a kid were diagnosed with pans or pandas, which is a fascinating Mm -hmm. diagnosis, relatively new, only really researched in the last maybe decade or so.
0: Mm -hmm. Really true. Yeah. And so, and what I find with pans and pandas is that, okay, let's say somebody has a streptococcal infection, and that's then leading to this autoimmune response to dopamine in the brain or other receptors in the brain that's causing an OCD or an ADHD type presentation. What are these other components of their gut that are then keeping that fire going? That's how I think about it. Because lots of times they go on antibiotics. And we get rid of the strep infection, but the autoimmune response is still there. Mm-hmm. And so that's where I think the gut work is so important for those individuals as well. Yeah, and that a lot more attention needs to be brought to that condition. I'm glad you're talking about it. I
2: am not. I don't actually remember what PANS stands for, what the full acronym is.
0: So PANS, I believe, is Pediatric Autoimmune Neuropsychiatric Syndrome Associated with Strep or with streptococcus and then pandas is pediatric autoimmune neuropsychiatric disorder associated with strep so yes yeah in essence autoimmune associated with strep affecting the brain
2: yeah which yeah. i think that in and of itself is a concept that can just blow people's minds in terms of wait a minute right. ocd can come from mm-hmm. Having strep throat too many times as a kid. <laughs> like, wow <whoa>. Right,
0: <laughs> right, exactly. Yeah.
2: Yeah. Yeah. 100%. Uh, so, so far, it's really only been researched in children. And I think, I think strep is more, more often occurring in children. But do you think there's any adult relationship between viruses and OCP and anxiety in adults?
0: I would say viruses, particularly in this post pandemic era, I, I could definitely see that. I can definitely see that. I don't know that we have the data yet on that, but I can definitely see that. Because in essence, certain proteins of viruses, we'll say it that way, seem to really perturb the mast cells. So I think it's highly conceivable that that could happen. Yes. And I think to, to go further into the strep piece, for those who maybe are not super familiar, your immune system is battling something. It could be gluten. In this case, it's a streptococcal infection, let's say, in your throat. Well, as your immune system is fighting that, it's creating antibodies to that bacteria. And then these antibodies, which are like little Pac-Man, or you can think of them as missiles, then if that strep bacteria or component of its DNA looks like a dopamine receptor in your brain, then that's how this whole phenomena happens. So, so yeah.
2: Wow. Say more about that piece, the dopamine receptor.
0: So, in essence, we find that these antibodies can bind to dopamine receptors or other components of the brain, different physiologic compounds, I guess you can say, that are really important in the basal ganglia. So the basal ganglia of our brain sits kind of superior and right behind our eyes. And it is the bright pedal for everything. So much neurological energy. I mean, our brain It's 2% of our body weight, but it consumes 20% of the oxygen. It's very metabolically active. A lot of that metabolic activity actually goes into what we call inhibition, shutting things off. And so in the basal ganglia, there's a motor portion. So for movements, so think Parkinson's disease. There's an eye movement portion, and there is a limbic portion of the basal ganglia as well. And so the limbic portion involves emotion. The cognitive portion involves thoughts. And we also have the eye movement portion, which I I don't think I mentioned. Nonetheless, if you have this immune response to a strep bacteria, and then that immune response is then impacting the basal ganglia, that can then lead literally to an inability to filter our thoughts or our emotions. So what is the spillover on that? It could be Obsessions, which turn into compulsion. It could be poor attention because your brain is racing so fast and you become hyperactive and you're flailing your legs because you just can't shut your brain off, similar to a Parkinson's patient who can't stop their hand from trembling. And it can spill over into ticks, which can be, you know, simple, what we call simple motor movements, the face or an arm. And it can become vocal and then it can spill over into Tourette's, where we have probably what most people have some concept of Tourette's, but there's many different types of, many different variations of Tourette's, I should say it that way. So all of it stems from this inability to shut off our brain, which can definitely be immunological.
2: Wow. Yeah. Yeah. So I've also heard you talk a little bit about things like Hashimoto's thyroiditis or some other things that folks might be diagnosed with. What would you say are some of the common physiological diseases that you notice come up for people that are struggling with any kind of mental health concern?
0: Yeah, I, Hashimoto's is a great example. Hashimoto's is where the immune system attacks the thyroid And so many people say, I went to my doctor and I had my thyroid checked. And I think we need to pause there and say, okay, what is that? What that typically means is that you had a blood test done looking at a hormone coming from your brain to your thyroid called thyroid stimulating hormone, TSH. And doctors use that as a screening tool because we know if someone's thyroid isn't working, making thyroid hormone the brain will send more signals to the thyroid. So TSH goes up. So as your thyroid goes down, your TSH goes up. So it's an inverse relationship, but that's what it means to have your thyroid checked. Most of the time, a doctor may run a thyroid hormone test called T4, but that's usually 98% of cases. That's what I see when people say their thyroid checked. well, there's this whole immunological response to the thyroid where the immune system can attack the thyroid. And it's an autoimmune disease. It's the most common autoimmune disease. Some estimates state that it affects one in three females. Wow. And the most common symptom of it is impaired quality of life via brain fog and/or feelings of depression. Wow. And so you have all these people running around out there largely female, who are being told they're totally fine, your thyroid is fine, take an antidepressant, when in actuality, they have an autoimmune disease that's impacting their brain. And that's been definitively studied and acknowledged in the literature. But sadly, this is not out there in mainstream healthcare. Yeah. So that's so important. So anyone who's suffering with brain fog, depression, just not feeling well, yeah, I absolutely would say, Testing for Hashimoto's is one of the first things that pops into my mind. Beautiful. And then then it gets really interesting because we now know that Hashimoto's can go along with a condition called autoimmune gastritis 40% of the time, Mm -hmm. at least 40%, if not 60%. So then these are individuals who are making immunological reactions to their stomach lining. And so they're gonna have an impaired ability through time to absorb their B12. So if you don't have B12 and you don't have active folic acid, our ability to make neurotransmitters in our brain, which then oftentimes serve as think of it as fertilizer for your neurons to grow in your hippocampus to shut off that fear response that may have been primed from childhood trauma. Now that isn't there. So yeah, conditions like Hashimoto's are so important for mental health. So is autoimmune gastritis. And that, that's kind of how I look at that. So,
2: so if, if folks are struggling with depression, anxiety, you know, maybe have other mental health labels or diagnoses mm-hmm. and are curious, have brain fog, you know, all these mm-hmm. other symptoms, mm-hmm. if they're curious, what do I do? What kind of medical tests should I run? You know, I personally think that it's irresponsible to treat folks in any mental health condition without really looking physiologically at what's going on. I think we need to have that integration, you know, so much deeper than we do in our medical system. But since we don't, what's the first line of defense? What's the first kind of range of tests that we might get curious about or or ask the doctor for?
0: Yeah. So, I mean, I think it's very reasonable to ask someone's doctor again. No, this is medical advice. I, I guess I have to say that. But if it were me, I would be talking to my doctor about being tested for Hashimoto's. And for those who don't know, I have like, I think over 300 YouTube videos now. So if you want more information, they can see what tests I talk about I did a whole like mass cell test list. But I would ask to be tested for Hashimoto's. I would ask to be tested for celiac disease and a gluten related disorder. I would ask them to test me for autoimmune gastritis as well as homocysteine. Homocysteine is just a very basic blood test that will tell you, in essence, if your B12 and active B9 are appropriate in your body or not. And also other trace minerals. So vitamin B1, B6, copper, zinc, all of those are magnesium are really important for healthy brain function. And those are all blood tests that can be done in a routine laboratory setting, regardless of what insurance most people have a doctor can usually justify getting those tests done. Beautiful. So those are quick and easy ones. In the functional world, there are so many more tests. There's in-depth gluten tests, as you know, microbiome tests, hormone tests. You know, we can do testing till the cows come home. So that's an option too. But something that everybody can do, that's a discussion to have with, with their doctor. Yeah, Yeah.
2: wonderful. Yeah. yeah, it always struck me that, you know, it is. it's incredibly unfortunate that, at least in the US in our medical system, functional medicine is so, so sidelined. And a lot of the tests aren't covered by insurance. People don't have as much access to it as they should. But there are some really kind of scrappy ways, like you mentioned, mm-hmm. you know, asking mm-hmm. your regular doctor for these tests that could be covered by insurance or some scrappy ways to kind of get around access issues. That's then, a great description.
0: Yeah, exactly. Cause then and those tests do tell you a lot. And they're the windows into, if you want to go functional, where you need to go. Yeah, Yeah, keep going. Exactly.
2: Yeah. So then, you know, once people really suspect, okay, I think there is something also physiologically going on. One of the things in my story. So once I finally did get tested for celiac disease and this came from, but didn't come from a doctor, it came from a friend who told me, Jasmine, I think I think all your symptoms are kind of indicating this because I also have celiac disease, so let's look at this, ask your doctor about this. So I did, test came back positive. But then the advice that I was given was, well, just go gluten-free and you should be fine right? And I'm sure you hear that from clients all the time. Well, I tried going gluten-free and like, I'm not hundred percent better in in my personal experience. I mean, it was, it was such a significant change. I okay. could finally sleep again. I could finally didn't have the brain fog anymore. And, and I think one of the things too here that I want to point out about gluten and celiac is that for most of my life, if I ate gluten, I I wouldn't notice any kind of major response in my body because gluten can stay in your system for such a long time that it really isn't until you're off of it for more than two weeks. And then you try, you know, eating gluten again, <laughs> then you notice, then you know what's really going on. But anyways, yes, that, yes, that yes. piece aside, I, I can't say though that I was fully, fully better because still issues like IBS and SIBO, small intestinal bacteria overgrowth, other things really lingered for me. And I think that that's true for so many people. So if you get these tests, you get the diagnosis, but you're still struggling. Do you see clients that that have this too? What do you usually do? Yeah.
0: And I think... I think having a good understanding of how complicated gut work is really helps. And just so everybody kind of knows out there, we tend to think in a singular fashion in our healthcare system, especially now in America, since let's say certain companies can advertise on TV all the time, we're trained to think, oh, if I want to run in a meadow and I have psoriasis, I need to take X product in order for that to happen. So it's a one-to-one. And functionally, it's not a one-to-one most of the time. So we can go off of gluten, like you say, be off of it for two weeks, and then we introduce it and we feel awful. Now we know that we have an issue. But underlying that gluten sensitivity, as you mentioned, we can have overgrowth of the gut bacteria in the small intestine. That can lead to bloating. That can lead to gas. That can lead to constipation. That can lead to diarrhea. Just that bacterial piece unto itself. We have 37 trillion approximately gut bacteria and 30 trillion cells in our body. So you have more gut bugs than you do cells in your body. And then as we find those bacteria produce short-chain fatty acids that affect our brain. So yes, we can overgrow the gut bacteria and then we can have histamine responses tied in with the mast cells based on those gut bacteria. And we can have sensitivity of the nerve plexus of our gut, largely based on the amygdala. So that's a key finding in irritable bowel syndrome is that the fear center hyper response that makes the bowel more sensitive to stretch. So yeah, an individual can go gluten-free and feel better, but they may not feel all the way better, which a lot of people then become disenfranchised and say, oh, I'm not all the way better. So it's so much easier than to go back to eating gluten societally from a social standpoint, but then something may be missed in doing that because we're scratching the tip of the iceberg, but there's so much more below the surface.
2: Yeah, absolutely. Yeah.
0: yeah, yeah. So that's really good. I'm glad you highlighted on that because that is a common phenomenon that a lot of people don't think about. And we have to think of foods, not only immunologically, I think of foods and how they impact the gut bacteria and then foods and how they impact your mast cells also. And I know personally, I experienced that. So you take a food like garlic, garlic is delicious, but for those with irritable bowel syndrome, garlic can create a lot of, think of it as bowel reactions. And then as an example, I'm intolerant to bananas. So if I eat bananas and I start sneezing, you Mm -hmm. know, so the more you dig into this, the more you'll realize how certain foods affect you in certain ways.
2: Mm -hmm. Yeah. So what kind of longer term interventions do you work with, with your clients who have these lingering issues?
0: So on my paradigm, I've tried to kind of take in a different direction than mainstream healthcare. Mainstream healthcare is you see your doctor, they make a diagnosis, maybe, maybe not. They send you for tests, then hopefully you have a diagnosis. They put you on a product and then you check back in with them in a month, two months, three months. I find that this is so complicated and it's fraught with a lot of emotional highs and lows as we go through it. I have a support system. So I see someone, I do like a three hour exam, and then we start into a process where I have daily communication with them and my staff, letting, we know everything they ate, how they felt, what questions do they have? They need to feel supported because food is a major part of our life and it can have addictive properties too, but unfortunately we need food to survive. So there's this delicate balance. And so I support them that way. We kind of eliminate foods based on their condition. I'm talking to them like once a week, and then they may be doing brain exercises. They may be doing focus exercises or taking certain supplements that I may be changing dosages on or amounts. And I do that over a period of sometimes four weeks, eight weeks, 14 weeks, sometimes longer. Analogy-wise, kind of like getting a a jumbo jet flying. That's the goal. We're trying to lift their physiology up in that time frame, giving them then the tools to maintain it. So then they know, okay, I introduced cheese, and all of a sudden, my depression came back. And so then they've, they've been through that experience, so now they know, okay, I need to stay away from cheese for six months or something, as an example. So that's what my process looks like. I think... In the mental health world, I think people need a lot more support. And I think we just keep using the medical paradigm, which is great for acute problems and admittedly not great for a lot of chronic problems by yeah. some of the top experts, at least in the U.S. So that's my take on it. I just think we, we just keep doing the same thing. and We have to do something different. Yeah. Absolutely. And what, what's the world's number one cause of disability? Depression not lower back pain. It's not orthopedic injuries. It's depression. Yeah. Yeah. So I'm a firm believer in what you're talking about. I'm a firm believer that this is where we need to start. And certainly we can co-manage with other mental health professionals. But I think this is where everyone, this is where, let's say probability-wise, I think a lot of people can be helped. If we started functionally, dietarily, supplement-wise, in the appropriate way. That's been my experience. Can I say that every functional practitioner out there has the solution to that? I can't say that. I think you need to find someone, if you're looking into this, who really focuses on the mental health side and functional. And there are more even psychiatrists who are going that direction now. Mm-hmm. But I do think that's a great way to go at first. Because as one psychiatrist put it to me, they said, What you're doing is foundational work. And you can't have a house without a foundation, or at least not a stable one. And so we need that foundational work. And then what else, What other dominoes fall, so to speak, when you do that? And one of my biggest passions, too, kind of as I mentioned at the onset of this, is what does this mean to your kids? So if someone has a genetic tendency for bipolar or schizoaffective or schizophrenia, because we know these have immunological correlates, the genetics for schizophrenia largely are through major histocompatibility alleles, i.e. immune genes. So this whole genetic association with schizophrenia is largely autoimmune. So can we start working with these families and saying, well, we know this is what the end stage can look like. So why don't we do things immunologically to help this family? So maybe, maybe something like that doesn't happen. And I can't say for sure that it won not but probability wise, what is the downside of taking someone in that situation gluten-free? With a well-balanced diet, because I know there's some nutritionists out there who argue, you're gluten-free, you're not going to get your nutrients. It's like, okay, we can get nutrients from other places than Cheerios, which I guess now we're gluten-free, but <laughs> you know <laughs> what I mean? Yes. You're frosted flakes. There's other ways to get fortified nutrients than frosted flakes.
2: That's true. It's yeah. like how people say with, with veganism, like you can be vegan and eat Oreos, or you can be vegan right. and have 20 vegetables a day.
0: <laughs> you got it. Yeah, you can do it either way. You yeah. can definitely do it in a healthy fashion.
2: Mm-hmm. Beautiful. So, so what are you yeah. nerding out about right now in the research? What's some of the most cutting edge work to you?
0: I think the mast cell domain is the next big thing. I really do. It's just as, it's so hard, again, in that one-to-one model of I have X disease, so I need to take X product versus what if there's one thing that's impacting 20 or 30 diseases, mm-hmm. which in this case, like we're talking about is celiac or gluten sensitivity. What if this genetic tendency for mast cells to be overactive is then resulting in whatever your biochemistry is, can result in migraine headaches, might result in allergies, might result in irritable bowel syndrome, might result in endometriosis, might result in multiple sclerosis. That's what we're finding. And so I think the mast cells, and particularly because they seem to be perturbed by certain proteins from a a virus that recently has impacted us and what does that mean to our physiology combining that with what has happened to the food supply in certain countries for those who live in europe i'm so envious because the food Mm -hmm. supply is still clean it's true
2: i just moved to germany and i'm so happily impressed by, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, my decision mm-hmm. to move here was certainly in part political and just in terms of what I have access to here that I never mm-hmm. would have in the States, healthcare-wise, you know, on every level. Yeah, say more about the food in the U.S. Well,
0: we, I don't think we can argue with the fact that the food supply has been augmented in the United States in an effort to quote-unquote feed the world and we have crops that are modified and resistant to certain pesticides and those pesticides are sprayed on those foods lots of times right before food is harvested so sometimes yeah it might have been washed off through irrigation but other times no and then we are consuming those pesticides which in certain court cases have been shown to cause different conditions i'm not saying Officially, that they cause every condition, but there's a lot of speculation that these pesticides impact our gut bugs, impact mm-hmm. our microbiome. Why are autoimmune diseases and allergic diseases just exploding in prevalence? You know, everybody's talking about the literature and they're saying, well, it might be this, might be that we're too clean, might be that we're not living with parasites and worm, but no one's really coming out and saying it. But what has changed? The food supply has changed. Correlation is not causation, but I think we need to examine that a little closer. And there's a lot of evidence pointing that direction. So that's where foods are so important, particularly now. I oftentimes think, let's say, what was life like in 1910? 1910, people were coming to the acknowledgement that they needed to wash their hands more. We needed plumbing. Those are really, really important public health measures that impacted disease in society, particularly in an era where there weren't antibiotics. It was a simpler time maybe a more peaceful time. And you go back 200 years, 300 years, people died of other causes. That's true. But what is happening now is we're living long lives, but we're inundated with so much. We're inundated with so much stress, so many more toxins, so many more insults to our physiology. And so we're living longer, but we have autoimmune and allergic disorders exploding. Yeah. And so I think being aware of that is a really, really good thing. Even just looking at if you live in, for example, a place a country that does have modified foods. What are those modified foods? And how does one feel if they totally go off of those modified foods and then they introduce them one at a time? It's an interesting experiment. I absolutely agree forward. that
2: yeah. that rates of allergies, autoimmunity, and cancer in particular, it cannot just be attributed to, you know, oh, now we have more awareness of it. So we're diagnosing it at higher rates. No, it's it's gone up. Exponentially, we have to look at what might be underlying that. And you know, to I think you and I both can agree, there are probably multiple factors, many factors, just like any any disorder, you know, doesn't usually have one underlying root. I've I've heard the argument with celiac and and wheat gluten in particular, that in the US, I believe more so than most other countries, we have wheat that's modified to have higher. Concentration of gluten than in other places. Do you think that's a piece Mm -hmm. that contributes? Mm -hmm.
0: Yeah. So, well, food modification more is, let's say, the genetics of the food being modified. So, there's that piece Mm -hmm. to be resistant to a pesticide. There is the element of then taking an unmodified food and spraying pesticide on it to get it to yield more of the substance you're trying to get, which is what is happening more and more with wheat. And then there's the hybridization of American wheat. So technically wheat, I don't believe is genetically modified at this point, but it's been hybridized so much that the gluten molecule, to your point, it's actually indigestible. So gluten is indigestible in America. And so when we look at a slide of a, a small intestine, it's very delicate and that gluten sits in there, it's indigestible and it actually breaks down the proteins that bind each intestinal cell together. They're called tight junctions. So, gluten is literally a toxin to that tight junction protein that was showed, shown in 2015 by the world's foremost researcher on gluten. He studied people with celiac disease, people in an active or inactive state, non celiac gluten sensitivity, and normal individuals. And he found that gluten broke down the intestine of all of them including the normal individuals, which then says what? Okay, so gluten's breaking down your intestinal lining. What does that mean? Well, it can mean everything you and I are talking about, but then we look at a condition like diabetes. 10% of Americans now are diabetic. That's before the the pandemic, 9.4% to be exact. About 30% of Americans are pre-diabetic. So we now say 40% of American adults have a blood sugar disorder, not counting obesity and being overweight and all those things. Well, we know that diabetes is a gut bacterial illness, actually. So pieces of bacteria break off, go into the bloodstream, go to the liver. That happens over time. It elicits so much inflammation. Ultimately, we become insulin resistant, and then we're not able to control our blood sugar correctly. But then you throw gluten into that piece, well, gluten's opening up the dam for those pieces of bacteria now to flow into your liver excessively. So that's where I think gluten is so, so, so important food is so important and people may not feel an immediate effect like you said or they may go off and they don't feel that different until they introduce it then they feel bad but that's again what happens if someone changes their foods for a couple years along with other measures to improve their physiology I think that's what's the next frontier that we need to be looking at
2: yeah I think a lot of folks aren't used to really feeling or knowing just how much power we have in this domain
0: right right or
2: anything or anything else that you want the public to know?
0: I think we covered it. I just feel that so many people who are suffering and not getting the answers, there are a lot of references online. And yeah, just using Hashimoto's as an example. I mean, there's a lot of doctors still perpetuate kind of stigmas onto patients. So, you know, you have a, a female who's healthy appearing, she's 30 years old and she has anxiety, and we just label her as having anxiety. POTS, I didn't even talk about POTS. So POTS, Postural Orthostatic Tachycardia Syndrome is a condition where blood stays down the lower extremities. It doesn't get up to the brain. It leads to a high adrenaline state, which will make somebody feel anxious, but they actually don't have generalized anxiety disorder. They're anxious because of their medical condition. But because they're a healthy, young, appearing female, they're told that they're totally fine, and you just have anxiety, or they have you know, but they actually have Hashimoto's or something like that, so I just think my urge is for patients to dig into the resources out there, don't necessarily accept that your diagnosis you know maybe confirm with another doctor, look into things holistically, and then make a decision
2: absolutely yeah. and to yeah. and to add on to that, I think you know I see a lot of researchers and doctors kind of going in the direction of we'll take gluten and psychosis, for example. I think there's kind of some folks pushing for the term gluten psychosis to kind of like separate that phenomenon as opposed to Mm -hmm. folks that maybe don't have psychosis that evolved from gluten or autoimmunity or, you know, whatever else. And I'm super wary about those kinds of like really intense distinguishments.
0: I know. I know. I, I totally agree. Because then we get into the studies from Johns Hopkins. They demonstrated that it's actually the immunological reaction to toxoplasma, this parasite, that then is a key piece for those, with psychosis as an example, to have a gluten and dairy reaction. We think so singularly in our medical system. I'm not a fan of that for chronic problems. Yeah. It just, why? For our own edification, for the edification of the researcher, while the individual suffers, let's look at them as a whole human. Because, and then we're neglecting, do they have colitis or gastritis? If you have those conditions and you're not going to absorb other nutrients, which is where other people are now talking about trace minerals being so important for mental health. So yeah, just to call it gluten psychosis, I don't think it's serving anyone. I think we need to look at the literature and say, huh, if this was me, what would I do if I knew all of this information? And why are we not taking a gut-based approach for anybody with psychosis?
2: Yes. Yes. I love that functional medicine quote of one symptom, many causes, one cause, many symptoms.
0: Right. 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 Yeah. That is beautiful. Yeah. Love it. Thank
2: you so much for your expertise. This was amazing.
0: Thank you, Jasmine. Thanks for having me. Yeah. Thanks for what you're doing. You're getting it out there.
2: I'm so grateful to you for being here. I also have something for you to take with you. It's a workbook and meditation bundle called Reclaiming All Parts of You.
1: I created it as someone who really resonates with moving through a lot of shame, insecurity, and self-doubt to really tackle these issues so that you can stop hiding
2: and feel free to express more of you. The link to that is in the description below. It's free. You can just sign up with your email. And if you loved this episode or this podcast, please let me know. I would love it if you left me a review on Apple Podcasts. Let me know what you liked and how it supported you. And I love hearing from you in general. So if you have a question for me or want me to talk about a specific topic on this podcast, send me an email and let me know. Until next time.